Good morning, Westmount. Glad to be with you today. Uh, Lori joins me in sending our love and greetings to each one of you. We trust that you are all doing well. And on a personal note, we would just like to uh, say thank you for your thoughtfulness and generosity as we as a family have been blessed by all your acts of love for these past uh, several weeks. So thank you so very much. Glad that you logged in today. We trust that the Lord will encourage uh, each of our hearts together. So let's pause and ask him for his help and his blessing. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence this morning. Thank you for this opportunity uh, to do so. Uh, Thank you that we can escape into the presence of the God that we know is uh, without change, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we always take refuge in that, and especially in these days, uh, even more so, it seems. Uh, Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Uh, Father, thank you for your acts of love. We've just been singing about the supreme act of love and sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to, to rescue us. Thank you that indeed you are the only Savior of our souls. And Father, we thank you for... Uh, being a God who delights to communicate, and you've given us your word. Uh, Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is its author. Uh, We acknowledge our dependence upon him this morning. Will you please take a passage of Scripture that will be familiar to many of us, uh, remind our hearts, encourage us together, teach us, instruct us, and Father, might we respond with an even greater heart of love and devotion to yourself. So Father, if you'd do that for us this morning, we'd be grateful and we'd give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 21. That will be where we focus this morning for our thoughts together. We've entitled this uh, message this morning, A Night to Forget, But a Morning to Remember. Uh, This is one of those post-resurrection appearances of our Lord that we want to look at. Uh, John makes reference that uh, here in this chapter, it is the third post-resurrection appearance. And we would understand from that that John is speaking of the fact that this is the third one that he references in his gospel. Um, The previous two that he references come in the the last chapter, in chapter 20, um, verses 19 through 23. We are reminded that it is on the first evening of the first resurrection day. And uh, the disciples are gathered together in the house. They're filled with fear. The doors are locked. And Jesus comes into their midst and says, Peace be with you. Uh, We remember that uh, Thomas was one who was not there. And later, from other accounts, we would understand that as the disciples relayed what had happened, Thomas said, Unless I see for myself, I will not believe. And so John records that eight days later, Once again, the disciples are in the house that's locked, and Jesus shows up in their midst. And once again, he gives them greetings of peace, and he challenges Thomas to be believing. And it's there in that context, in verses 26 through 29, that we have those wonderful words of Thomas when he says, my Lord and my God. Um, The third occurrence is here in chapter 21. And we want to read together most of the chapter, verses 1 down through 23. We read, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, who we understand to be John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the reading of God's word for us this morning that will encourage and bless our hearts.
It was a night to forget. But close his eyes and try as hard to forget, he found it impossible. It was a night that was memorable for all the wrong reasons. He'd been at the wrong place at the right time and had done what he said he would never do. He had done for him what was the unthinkable. He remembered how the Lord had said to his disciples, one of you will betray me. Judas ultimately asked, surely not I, Rabbi. But Jesus says, yes, it is you. But the Lord continued, and he said, this very night all of you will fall away on account of me. Peter remembered the Lord saying that. But Peter also remembered saying, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But Jesus said this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And again, those words burned in the memory of Peter. He had been warned, but he really wasn't listening. He wasn't listening because he really didn't think it would happen. He said, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not disown you. He had been so confident, so convinced that he would be able to stand true, that he would stand tall. But later that same night, when the officials gathered and arrested the Lord Jesus and led him to the house of the high priest, we read that Peter lingered and followed from a distance. Uh, Those who were in in the employ of of the courtyard, they built a fire in the midst of the courtyard, and they gathered and huddled around it. Peter took his place. And as the fire burned, the servant girl, she looked at the fire, and she looked at Peter, she looked at the fire, she looked at Peter, and then finally she said to some who were around her, this man was one of them, this man was with him. And Peter responded, and he said, woman, I don't know him. A little bit later, another said, looking at Peter, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I don't know him. And then after about an hour, there was another who spoke, and he said, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. By this time, Peter has had it. He loses it, and he begins to curse, and he says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was saying that, the rooster crowed. And the Lord off in the distance, he turned around and he looked at Peter. And in that brief moment, they locked eyes. And Peter remembered the words of the Lord. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It's Matthew who tells us that after this, Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Speculation is that Matthew got that tidbit of information probably from Peter himself as they talked about what that event was like. It was a night to forget, but it was memorable for all the wrong reasons. He had done what he said he would never do. Peter denied the Lord. Days have now passed, but it's the past that continues to haunt Peter like a clenched fist in the pit of his stomach. He felt the pain and the sting of that moment over and over and over again. And with each playback of that flashback in Peter's mind, the weight of his failure felt heavier and heavier 
and heavier. To think that you had blown it so severely that you could never get up off the mat made for a horrible experience. To think, was this really the way the curtain was going to come down in his life of ministry and his call to follow Jesus? One would hardly blame Peter if he had resigned himself to what probably seemed like the inevitable. It was a night to forget, but the greatness of his failure made it impossible. You know, Satan has multiple strategies in his arsenal that he deploys at just the right moment to to overwhelm us. Sometimes it's the way that he packages sin. Like he makes it so attractive, so appealing, so alluring, that we might be inclined to say, I give up, I give in, how am I supposed to resist that? Or maybe it's after we have yielded to the temptation and we have indulged in the sin and Satan strengthens the headlock of his grip on us as he tries to make us think and tries to convince us that our sin is too great even for God. You call yourself a follower of Jesus and you do that? Really? You think you can come to God and get forgiveness for that sin again? I don't think so. Even God in all his grace will see through that. And so we're left with the weight. The weight of our sin, which just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. I want to suggest that where we find Peter as we come into this passage in John 21 is that Peter is left with the weight of his sin, the guilt of his sin that gets heavier and heavier and heavier. I wonder this morning if that's where some of us are as well, struggling with the weight of our sin, struggling with our own guilt of our sin, feeling the weight of it as it gets heavier and heavier, past indiscretions that can haunt us, sins that we have participated in that knocked us to the floor, Uh, maybe even attempts that we have made to deal with it in the past, but, but only to fail again. Secrets that only we know about, but they immobilize us and they paralyze us as we live within our broken worlds. And Satan is there to try to convince us that our sin, your sin, my sin, is even too great for God to forgive. And perhaps we too resign ourselves to the inevitable. And that might be where some of us find ourselves this morning. And that's why we need to hear the words of John 21. That's why we need to be reminded of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, the hope and the assurance that it gives to us, and the implications that that has in our lives. And so John 21 is our post-resurrection appearance that we're going to look at this morning. It's after the resurrection. The disciples, we understand from verse 1, have made their way from Jerusalem back to Galilee. The location of this, the occasion of this, the context is the Sea of Galilee. For the disciples to be back in Galilee means that they are back on home turf. This is familiar territory for them. But I don't think that's the real reason why they're back in Galilee. Undoubtedly, they are back in Galilee because the Lord has said that after the resurrection, he would meet them in Galilee. Even on resurrection morning, the instruction to the women is, go tell the disciples and Peter 
that the Lord would meet them in Galilee. So here they are, back in Galilee. Probably implicit with the instructions to meet at Galilee was the idea that further instruction would be forthcoming. Uh, Where does the ministry go from here? What does that look like? Instructions for the next chapter. Might I suggest that perhaps in Peter's mind it's hard for him to think about next chapter. Next chapter? He's already camping out on the last chapter and his failure. Uh, Not doubting or denying that there will be a next chapter, but if there is a next chapter, and as far as Peter is concerned, uh, who would ever want to assign to him any kind of significant role in whatever that next chapter would be? After all, in the moment when he was needed the most, he failed most miserably. When the team needed a home run, he didn't even get a bunt single. He didn't get out of the batter's box. He's called out on strikes in a humiliating way. And so Peter, in verse 3, in the presence of the other disciples, he says, I'm going fishing. You pick up a commentary and you look at these words and this verse and you find that there's different perspectives as to what that expression means when Peter says, I'm going fishing. Uh, There are those who would suggest that it's nothing more than uh, the disciples realizing that they need to provide for their families in the interim. So they're going fishing. No big deal. Uh, In contrast to that, there's a perspective that says that this is a big deal. That when Peter says, I'm going fishing, uh, that he's really walking away from his call to follow Jesus. He's thrown in the towel, as it were. I'm going fishing. Then there's the mediating position which Don Carson would represent, and not so much that the disciples are walking away from their ministry, but it certainly is true that none of these disciples are all revved up about the next chapter and getting on with the program. And there's a whole lot of the kind of thinking that says, we all let the master down. And so for our purposes this morning, uh, Peter says, when I'm going fishing, we can all conclude that by engaging in that, whatever the motivation, that Peter engaging in the fishing is engaging in something that he knows that he's good at. He knows that he's good at that. Uh, This might be just a moment of reprieve, just where Peter can kind of forget about everything and occupy his mind a little bit with something else and maybe try to forget what has just happened. Peter knew that this discipleship thing had, had its special moments. I mean, there were those occasions when there were great statements of truth that came from the lips of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was pretty special. Uh, watching Jesus, get a, had a front row seat to Jesus performing these incredible uh, miracles. That was pretty neat. Uh, and even Peter was privileged to be part of that, that inner core, along with James and John, who got to participate in some special pre- some pretty special moments with the Lord, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, There were pretty special moments for sure, but there were also some other moments that came up on the wrong side of, of the ledger. But certainly denying the Lord was the ultimate in them all. But at least now for a moment, as he goes fishing, he can get a reprieve from all that. He can go and he can do something that he's 
good at. Fishing, there. At least that's something that he could be a success at. But as our text unfolds, we observe that the Lord isn't going to allow Peter to withdraw into his safe world without being reminded of his dependence upon the Lord even there. And the text tells us that they got out into the boat. They do their fishing. The end of verse 3 says that they fished that night, but they caught nothing. Uh, they're fishing at night, not because they don't want to be seen, but it was well regarded that sometimes the best catches that you could get on this particular body of water, the Sea of Galilee, came at night. And so they're fishing at night. We can't escape the tail end of verse 3 that tells us they caught nothing. They fished all night. They've come up short. Translated, that means failure, failure, failure. Uh, During the night, Peter and the other disciples, I I mean, this was a body of water that they were familiar with. They might not have had these boats and these nets out for a while, but kind of like riding a bicycle. They know this body of water. And they've gone here, they've gone there, they've gone to all the best fishing spots. They've caught nothing. And just when it seems that things could not get worse, verse 4 tells us that dawn has arrived. Daybreak was appearing. That just underscores the night's gone. They really have come up empty. And in verse 4, there's this stranger who appears on the shore. This unidentified stranger from their perspective. And he says to them in verse 5, Do you have any fish? Now here are these guys fishing all night. I'm sure it started out with expectations, lots of anticipation, just the way your fishing expeditions start out. Lots of excitement, how much fun this is going to be. And perhaps when they got back out on the Sea of Galilee and as they talked with one another, man, we've missed this. We haven't done this for a long time, have we? It, it was good to be there, but that's on the front end. Lots of anticipation, lots of excitement. But as the night has gone on, the edge has worn off. And they found a new edge. Maybe they're just a little cranky. Uh, certainly tired and probably hungry. And for some stranger to appear on the seashore, and to call out and say, how's the fishing going, guys? Well, that could almost seem like salt in the wound. If the knife is already in there, that could be just turning the knife just a little bit, one would think. Do you have any fish? They answer no. I don't know how, what the expression, I don't know what the tone was when they said no. Might have been a little sharp, might have been just a little curt. And he responds to them and says, put your nets on the other side. You'll get some there. Verse 6. And the remarkable thing, verse 6 tells us that they did it. They're the professionals. They know what they're doing. The stranger's on the shore. Put your nets on the other side. The remarkable thing is that they did it. And the reality is, the result is that immediately what they have tried to accomplish in a whole night is accomplished in a single moment. Their nets are full. The end of verse 6. 
so full that they are not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. John immediately says, first part of verse 7, his immediate conclusion, John, the one who's writing this, this book, this gospel account, he says, it is the Lord. That gives Peter the immediate desire to bail out of the boat. He prepares himself and immediately he heads for shore. He leaves his comrades in this moment to deal with the weight, to deal with the rest of the fish. Peter will come and help later. But for now, if that's Jesus on the shore, Peter is going to maximize the moment and he makes it to the shore. I'm not sure if at this stage already Peter is remembering a similar but much happier experience. Luke tells us of that in Luke 5, 1 through 11. And there Jesus says to Peter, put your nets on the other side. And Peter says, Lord, we've fished all night. We've caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your request, I will. They put down the net, and the nets break in that scenario. So many fish that the nets break. And Peter, his immediate response when he sees that, he says, get away from me. O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the Lord assures him not to fear. And on that occasion, he calls Peter, and he says, you will no longer be a fisher of fish, but rather you will be a fisher of men. I wonder if in this brief moment, in John 21, if that's what Peter perhaps is thinking about, if there was this eureka moment, this epiphany, When the light goes on, I wonder if even now he's starting to connect the dots. That way back there, the Lord had created this scenario. And now, even in the midst of Peter's discouragement, maybe even his disillusionment, being overwhelmed with his guilt, the Lord revisits and kind of reinvents the circumstances that you just can't help but make the connection. And Peter gets to the shore And when he gets to the shore, he's even more surprised. Because there on the shore, the Lord has a fire. There's charcoals, a charcoal fire. And on that fire, there's fish. And there's some bread, verse 9. And he says to the other disciples, verse 10, bring some of your catch over here. Put it on the fire. Come and have breakfast. Come and dine. I mean, it's breakfast on the beach. It's a very moving experience. Here is the Lord, the one who has sought out these disciples. He comes to the very place that they are, the Sea of Galilee, as they are aimless on the sea, fishing without success. And he speaks to them and he gives them some direction. And then he gives them the invitation. And he says, come eat. Let's dine. Let's come and enjoy some intimacy. Uh, These are the very men, the very people who have recently deserted him. The one when the chips were down, they're gone. And here is the Lord, their master. But in all his humility and in all his grace, serving the disciples some of their most basic needs. It's a reminder to us that because of the resurrection, the Lord is able in grace to meet us where we are at. 
and provide for us our most basic needs. That God's grace is sufficient for the ordinary things in life. By the way, where did Jesus get the fish? When Peter gets into the shore, there's already fish that is on the fire. Uh, The text tells us that nobody asked Jesus who he was. They knew he was Jesus. And if that's Jesus, then they don't need to ask him where he got the fish. Uh, When the disciples want fish, they go out in the boats and they fish. When Jesus wants fish, he he has other means. And he prepares this meal. And in the quietness of that moment, I don't know what God exchanged over that fire. But we know that Jesus, in their moment of aimlessness, in their moments of discouragement, in their moments of feeling failure, that Jesus searches them out where they are, gives them some direction, and gives them an invitation to come experience the intimacy. What do we need when we find ourselves in those moments when we think we've failed, when we might be on the mat, when we might be saying, what's the use? Ah, we need this Jesus by his Spirit And he comes and he searches us out. And he says, how are you doing? How's it going for you? Oh, not to put salt in the wound. Uh, Not to twist the knife. He genuinely wants us to know that he resonates with what our need is. And he gives them some direction. And that direction is always submission to him, is always obedience to him. How are you doing with your hardened heart? How are you doing with the heart of bitterness? He gives us instructions, and he bids us to come to him. Uh, To come to him on the beach, if you will, where he has his provisions for us, where he delights to meet us in repentance and forgiveness. And he says, come, let's have breakfast. It's an invitation to intimacy. Uh, Peter that day came to realize that the greatness of his sin could not outdistance the greatness of God's grace, that the greatness of his failure could not outdistance the greatness of God's grace. And that's true for us this morning as well, that the greatness of my sin cannot outdistance the greatness of God's grace, that his grace is sufficient for all the ordinary things in life. Uh, Peter was going to go on and further experience the reality that there's another chapter that gets written. And not only is God's grace sufficient for the ordinary things of life, like basic provisions of food, but God's grace is also sufficient for the super extraordinary things in life. That God's grace is sufficient for the most fundamental spiritual needs of life. And Peter gets to experience a fresh appreciation of God's grace. Verse 15 says that when they had finished breakfast, that Jesus speaks to Peter, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Uh, Peter, uh, do you love me more than these? Of course, there's an interpretive issue here as to what is or what are the these. Um, Peter, do you love me more than these fishing nets? These boats, this boat, love me more than these fish. 
You're going to go back to fishing and throw your towel in? Do you, do you love me more than the vocation? Uh, Peter, do you, do you love me more than your colleagues? Uh, do you love me more than the disciples? Or Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, Peter, after you've denied me three times, after you said that uh, even though all the others would fall, that you would remain true, <laughs> do you still love me more than these other disciples do? Uh, the Lord tests Peter's love with the question. And three times over, he asks Peter the question, Peter, do you love me? And three times over, Peter will say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Uh, the third time, the Lord asks the question to Peter. Peter is somewhat exasperated. It bothers him that the Lord asks three times. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And with each positive affirmation of Peter's love, the Lord gives Peter a commission. He says to him, feed my lambs. He says, take care of my sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Verse 16, verse 17. Much has been made in the past in relation to the different words for love here, the two different words for love. Two, uh, first two questions that the Lord asks are the first two times the Lord asks Peter if he loves him. It's this word agape, the supreme love. The third time it's phileo. It's I'm fond of you kind of love. And each time Peter responds with the I'm fond of you kind of love. Um, it's not so much that different words are used here, that the Lord is trying to get Peter to a higher level of conviction. It's well documented that within the New Testament times and also elsewhere that those words are really interchangeable. But the text gives us the insight as to what the real issue hits here because it says that the third time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? It says Peter was grieved because it was the third time. Three times Peter disowned the Lord. And three times God is going to recommission him to ministry and to service. And the, con the symmetry was not lost on Peter. Uh, three times in public, Peter denied the Lord. Uh, three times in public, Peter would be recommissioned to ministry to serve the Lord. Uh, Peter gets to experience the amazing aspect of God's grace. The amazing thing about my sin and my failure is that it cannot outdistance the greatness of God's grace. Peter experienced that even in the basic things of life. But he also experiences it in the supernatural things of life. Our basic spiritual needs, the needs of forgiveness, the needs of restoration. And here, over and above, Peter gets re-entrusted, recommissioned with ministry and to serve the Lord. God in grace here connects Peter to, to mission. And just very briefly, we won't uh, spend a lot of time on it. I suggest three observations we make about this commission to mission that Peter experiences. 
Number one, it's a mission that connects Peter to people. Uh, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Uh, Ministry serving the Lord always goes through people. Ministry connects us to people. And God challenges Peter, recommissions him to serve, and it connects him to people. Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And Peter does that. And in part, we have his epistles later on that he would write that are just a part of how Peter would fulfill that mission. Uh, The Lord connects Peter in grace to mission, mission that involves people. But not only that, it's mission that involves sacrifice. Verses 18 through 19, he says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Explanation, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, which we understand to be crucifixion. The kind of death that Peter was going to die, the Lord gives him the insight. Peter, come, follow me. And even in following the Lord, even in the midst of that hardship, it will underscore the necessity for Peter to rely on that supply of God's grace. Peter, you're going to die a death that you don't want to die. Crucifixion. Peter experiences the grace of God. God reconnects him with mission. A mission that goes through people. A mission that involves sacrifice, hardship. Discipleship always, always does that. And then thirdly, it's a mission, verses 21 and 22, <clears throat> it's a mission that is personal. By that I mean it's a mission that's tailor-made. It was specifically designed for Peter. After hearing what kind of death he was going to experience, verse 20 says that Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is, he saw the apostle John following him, and so Peter, in verse 21, turns to the Lord and he says, what about this man? Like, what about John? If this is the lane that I'm going to run in, crucifixion is the ultimate sacrifice here, what, what about John? And Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus very graciously says to Peter, we put it bluntly, he said, none of your business. Peter, don't, don't worry about John. This is my design. This is my plan that's for you, tailor-made for you. And God has his design and God has his plan that's tailor-made for each of us. We may camp out on our weakness. We may camp out on our failings. All those things that remind us of the necessity of God's grace and his enabling in our lives. But we take courage this morning that God in grace challenges us and entrusts us to serve him. Uh, It's a ministry that involves people. His ministry always does. It's a ministry that will involve sacrifice. That's the way of discipleship. And it's a ministry that's tailor-made for us. Not so much speaking of the particular dot that we're pursuing, but where God has placed us. 
the gifts that God has entrusted to us, the circumstances that are ours, the people who are part of our influence. God gives us the lane to run in, and he enables us by grace to do that. This resurrection, the assurance of the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that unleashes us the opportunity to experience the abundance of God's grace. God's grace that is able to meet our most basic needs, the ordinary needs of life, even something as simple as food that we sit down to enjoy at lunch. But God is able and does give to us that grace that is sufficient not just for the ordinary things, but the super extraordinary things, our most basic spiritual needs, forgiveness, restoration, and there's repentance, and then entrusting us with ministry, investing our lives in something that counts forever, and giving us a lane to run in. This was a wonderful experience and a wonderful lesson that Peter learned here in John 21 as he's camping out in failure, but then he meets the Lord on the beach, wonderfully, gloriously restored to the Lord. And in Peter's experience, what was a night to forget became a morning to remember. He was impressed and rediscovered what we also need to remember this morning, that the greatness of my sin can never outdistance the greatness of God's grace. Father, thank you for the reminder from your word, this encouraging lesson from your word. Thank you that you are a God who is real. You are a God who is gracious. Thank you that you are a God who because of Christ and because of Calvary, you don't deal with us as our sins deserve, but that you deal with us in grace. We thank you for Jesus, your son, this morning that makes this disposal, our receiving of this grace possible. And Father, thank you this morning that each of us are dependent upon your grace, a grace that is sufficient for the ordinary things of life. And Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient for the super extraordinary things of life, forgiveness of sins, restoration, opportunity to serve you, to run in the lane, all for your glory. Father, you are a glorious God. You are a gracious God. With grateful hearts, we say thank you. Encourage us and bless your word to us this morning, we pray. Amen.